Well, I'm going to Ezekiel chapter 22. That's where we will resume this morning. We'll be starting in verse 17 and going to verse 22. Chapter 22, verses 17 through 22. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into a furnace to blow the fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath. And I will put you in and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. The title of the sermon is The Divine Metallurgist. uh, And this is... uh, The process, what I'm referring to there, is the process of purifying precious metals. I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about that. I know just what I've learned in preparation for this sermon. Basically, to put it in the simplest of terms for you, uh, when 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 you're seeking to uh, retrieve precious metals from the earth, think uh, gold and silver. Silver is the particular one in the case of our text this morning. You start with usually a hunk of metal and minerals that are not silver, but silver's in there. And so it's a process whereby you remove everything that is not silver so that only silver remains. Everything that is not silver is called the dross, that is the the junk, the, the not silver. All of that is melted away so that only the silver is left behind. And so we have the Lord here, the Lord Almighty, using this metaphor of melting away impurity so that only the pure is left behind. It's actually used a a few places in Scripture, probably most famously in two places. One of them is Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So immediately what you have there is this image of of a crucible for silver, furnace for gold, places where the impurities are burned away. And the, uh, what, what Solomon's getting at here is the Lord does something like that, except what he's interested in is purifying your heart, removing the junk, removing the trash, the garbage, the impurities out of your heart so that the pure is left behind. Malachi chapter 3 is another place uh, in prophetic literature where we see this language. Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priesthood, refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. So here we have another instance of this metaphor in prophetic literature with the ultimate goal given away, with the end of the movie, if you like, given away. The purpose being that one day righteousness will be restored, pure worship will be restored. You also see this uh, in other places in prophetic literature, both Isaiah and Jeremiah 
like this picture. God is this metallurgist removing sin and impurity from His people so that, only the, so that, the, so that they are left behind. What is left behind is His people in a clean state. So what's this metaphor have for us today? What does this picture have for us today? That we see a glimpse of it in Ezekiel and in a few other places in Scripture. I'm going to share with you at least three things that are in this text for us. First is a sober warning. Second is an obvious reality. And then third is a joyful hope. Okay, a sober warning, an obvious reality, and a joyful hope. So a sober warning, primarily to the people of God. What we might call the household of God, the household of faith, God's own people. We see this language of precious, uh, uh, God's people are called His precious and treasured possession. More on that in just a moment. But that's not the language Ezekiel used, obviously. What Ezekiel uses is language of dross. And so in the Old Testament, we find some of the richest language to describe how God sees His relationship with His people. In Exodus chapter 19, we read that the Lord tells them, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So here's the Lord saying, all the earth is mine. I am separating you out, calling you out as a people to be my treasured possession. You, you might hear their language of, of uh, precious metal, precious stone, that kind of, of jewelry, treasure type of language. Similar language shows up again in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy set apart to the Lord your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. There it is again. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Notice, two, notice a few things there about that text. First of all, you have the Lord separating them in both texts, both the Exodus and the Deuteronomy text. And then you have treasured possession language both times. And then you have some kind of mention of the other nations in distinction from what God has done with Israel. And, and just by way of reminder, you, you might remember that part of the scandal of Ezekiel is God is saying you've become like the other nations. You've sought to be dross, basically. You've sought to be the junk when I had set you apart as my treasured possession. So God has declared that His people were to be His treasured possession. But when we get to Ezekiel and the exile, what's happened? They have gone from treasured possession to verse 18... Dross. The house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead. In other words, the junk. What you notice missing from that list is silver. Okay? Now, as I've told you before, in the book of Ezekiel, God is marvelously unhurried. It's a long book. God takes a lot of time and a lot of words to actually say a pretty short list of things to Israel. There's a lot of repetition happening. If you're getting the sense that a lot of these Ezekiel sermons sound similar, or at least they tend to hit the same points or the same themes repeatedly, congratulations, number one, you've been listening. Number two, that's a feature, not a bug. Okay? The Lord apparently means for us to be a, a people who receive repeated admonitions. So take heart, parents, if you're having to repeat your admonitions, so does your heavenly Father. 
Our God is not obsessed with brevity, I think, the way we are. He is not confined to simplistic speech. He's willing to say the same thing 15 different ways that he might be heard. Israel's problem, part of it anyway, we start to see unfolding in Ezekiel, is that they were in a sense trading on their spiritual past so they could be lazy in their spiritual present. Say it again. They were trading on their spiritual past, treasured possession, so they could be lazy in their spiritual present. They willfully were twisting Scripture so they could ignore the voice of the prophets and pretend like everything was fine. This temptation still confronts us today where we are tempted to tell, focus all of our energy on telling, say, stories of the glories of God from 30 and 40 years ago. That's easy. Talking about what God has done 30 or 40 years ago, really easy. Talking about the sin that threatens to destroy me today is a lot harder. And for some of us, it feels impossible. But we have to square with the reality that past spiritual experiences do not mean anything for the present call to obedience. Okay? So I'm not saying past spiritual experiences are worthless, but, but they do not have an impact on the ways that the Lord God is calling you to walk in His ways today. We have to square with the reality that past spiritual experiences do not suffice for the present day call to obedience. So Israel was the treasured possession. Now, again, we hear what the Lord says. He refers to them. He uses the language of dross. And so that's the first point. The second point is an obvious reality. Okay? We started with a sober warning. Now we're getting to an obvious reality. It's obvious because it hits everyone, though in different ways. Let me explain. Verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. So God says you've become like dross, verse 18. Then he promises to do something about it, to gather them into Jerusalem. Translation, the walled city of protection, Israel's safe space, if you like, has itself become the furnace of judgment. This metaphor of dross and refiner's fire is, again, I, I would say familiar to us. On some level, we can all accept it. I mean, if I said, okay, let's, let's run with this metallurgical analogy. If I said, look for dross in your life that you want removed today. Okay? It's running a little bit ahead. But if I were to say, is there anything in your life you want removed? Everyone in the room would say yes. You don't even have to be a Christian for that exercise to work. Everyone has stuff in their life they consider to be dross or garbage and they want removed. This is, by the way, how the idols of our heart often gain a hold of us. So you recognize some absence in yourself and then all of life becomes about that pursuit or the acquisition of that thing. Like if I, if I just have the right education, then I'll be smart enough Right? So people will listen to me, whether that's an insecurity thing or a need to be in control or have power thing. Uh, if, if I can just fix this person that I love, I'm, I'm thinking mainly of situations like with an addict or something like that. If I can just fix this person, then I'll be enough. Right? That, so, I'm, so I'm threatened by the fact that 
my world is out of balance. There are people whom I love who are very, very broken and imperfect. And if I can do the job of fixing them, then, then that means I'm okay. I'll, I'll be good enough. If I have the right appearance, then I'll be beautiful enough. Right? And so I'll, I'll finally be okay. These are, these are idols of the heart or the tendency of the heart toward idolatry. If I finally have X, then I'll be okay. If I finally have the right appearance or procedure, then I'll be okay. If I finally have enough money, then I'll be safe. That's the temptation of money. It tempts you to trust in it for safety. If I have enough attention from my peers or from people who I care about, then I'll be worth enough. If I have enough order or peace and quiet, then my life will be steady enough so I can make good decisions. That's one that works on me. If I have enough physical affection or satisfaction of my lust, then I'll be happy enough and I'll you know, be, be, be steady and, and I'll have the kind of capacity to handle the other things that, that challenge me. We all know what it means to have residing imperfection or residing unhappiness in us and want it to go. But make sure you read me carefully here. The Lord Almighty is not, in Ezekiel, speaking of a mere self-improvement project. Dross here is not the annoying habit that you want to get over. Dross is the sin that you are trying to ignore or hide. It's the sin that you're trying to ignore or to hide. This is one of the most common temptations of our flesh. When there's a sin going on in our heart or revealed in our actions as well, we are tempted to ignore it. Or, I would also say to, to another, another option would be to integrate it. Let me explain what I mean. So, so to ignore it simply means to let it go unconfessed. Unconfessed before God, unconfessed before man. That's the hiding it or the ignoring it. They tend to be the same thing functionally. Unconfessed sin before Jesus, unconfessed sin before your family and friends, whoever it might be against. Or we're tempted to integrate it. That is, to make it an immutable part of who we are. Okay? So, so it's not so much that I'm impatient, it's just that I have a really short fuse for annoying people. <laughs> okay? So it's, it's not that I'm impatient, I just don't handle uh, uh, unreasonable people very well. Alright? Uh, I'm not harsh or cruel, I'm just misunderstood, I had a bad childhood, and people are really too sensitive. It's not that I hate people or that I'm unwilling to love, I'm just an introvert and I want nothing to do with my fellow image bearers unless they can make me feel better about myself. Or, another way this takes shape, and to quote, to quote our pastor emeritus, I'm about to leave preaching and go to meddling, another way this takes shape is by the appeal to experience. Right? And I have to be honest, I hear this one a lot. Now, before I got married... If I ever met with a married couple for counseling, almost without fail, I mean, there were exceptions. So if you met with me, maybe you can think of yourself as one of the exceptions. But almost without fail, at a certain point I heard, well, you know, you're not married, Brian. I don't expect you to understand. At that point, the conversation was usually pretty much over. I wasn't offering advice from my experience, to be clear. I was maybe trying to explain how Paul says husbands are to love and cherish their wives. Or how wives are to honor and respect their husbands. Like, that's not advice based on my experience. That's literally an apostolic commandment. Okay? Well, yeah, I know Paul says that, but you don't understand how hard it is. How could you? How could you? You're not married. So I got married. 
<laughs> right? Then guess what I heard. You ready for this? I know, Pastor Brian, the Bible says the thing I'm doing is sinful. I know you're telling me it's sinful, but you got like a really nice wife. So there's no way you could understand what I'm going through. My wife is really mean. Or, oh, you've only been married a year. There's no way you could understand. Or we're struggling in our family. Okay, here's what the Bible says about family. Well, you don't have kids yet. Why do I have the sense that in like two years I'm going to hear, well, your kids are still little. (laughs) At a certain point, beloved, I have to suspect that we are wired to not receive correction. (laughs) Amen. Right, and all God's people said, amen. This is common. When we're given correction, we tend to flee to the unique details of our circumstances as a reason for why what God Almighty has said does not apply to my situation. If we're honest, the reality is we're really experts in justifying ourselves and our sin. We're really good at it. Because that's the very first thing our first parents did when when their sin was exposed, right? They started blaming. Where this is best seen, the the dross that the Lord is removing, where it's best seen, though, is just what what, and what I have been talking about for the last few minutes is just simple run-of-the-mill, boring old unbelief. Unbelief that God is trustworthy or that He keeps His promises. Sin really boils down to one of those two things. Unbelief that God is trustworthy or maybe powerful enough would be another one, but, but uh, trustworthy that He keeps His promises. And I guess those are, those are the kind of same thing. So to, to go back to the example earlier, unbelief that God is trustworthy. So God tells husbands and wives how to live together, how to mirror Christ in the church. We respond often, we're tempted to respond and say, that's really too hard though. When Paul wrote that, he didn't have my experiences in mind, right? Apparently, all of the husbands in Ephesus were really nice and thoughtful and romantic and understanding. (laughs) That's why the text doesn't apply. And husbands can be guilty of this too, right? Apparently, all of the wives in Ephesus were really easy to understand and really easy to love. And there's no way Paul's words could apply to us because the Holy Spirit just didn't take our situation into account. What this boils down to is that you just don't think God can be trusted, okay, if we're honest. What a lot of, uh, that's what a lot of this boils down to in our experiences of unbelief. It's that we, don't, we, we read what God says in His Word and we say, yeah, that's quaint. This is what's behind most of the great failures of the church of the last 50 years, to bring the gospel to our neighbors. We believe sometimes we are... I should say, tempted to believe. God has given us like an abstract concept of salvation to believe, but not actually a life to be lived out following after what God has said. Everybody wants the refining fire of God for their nation. Nobody wants it for their living room. Okay? So we have to ask some questions of ourselves. What is the dross in my heart that the Lord would seek to remove? What is the garbage that's still clinging to my heart? Is there bitterness in my heart toward my brother? Anger in my heart toward my sister? Bitterness, uh, despising of my husband? Bitterness toward my wife? Anger towards my parents? Father's Day. And did I just answer any of those questions with yes, but you don't understand my situation? (laughs) 
What is a life circumstance that I'm really angry at God for, maybe? And until he fixes it, I have zero interest in anything else he says. Has God called me to repent of my sin, like with my lips, to the actual people that I actually sinned against? Or, is, or am I ignoring it? Or to make it really simple, maybe really simple for some of you, what is the confession and repentance that needs to happen over lunch in about half an hour to 45 minutes? So, taking you two places so far. First of all, as a, as a sober warning. Right? This, this warning of, of the God of judgment removing dross, actually saying, I'm going to, in this sense, force this problem out of you by refining fire. And then next we have this reality that everyone can understand that we all want dross removed. We just have trouble identifying it in our own own hearts properly. But there is, third and finally, a joyful hope, which is that our Lord is a refiner. And He's going to do this work. And for the last three verses of this passage, the Lord says kind of the same thing a few different ways in these next few verses. As one gathers silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow on the fire, excuse me, to blow the fire on it in order to melt it, so I will gather you in my anger and my wrath. I will put you in and melt you. Will gather you, blow on you with the fire of my wrath. You shall be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. And again, we find our familiar refrain, you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath on you. You see, you see the, the importance of that there. God is saying, the reason why you don't know I'm the Lord is because you think I don't keep my promises and I don't mean what I say about sin and judgment. God here promises His people that He will refine them. Now some of you are wondering, I thought you said your third point was about hope. Hang on a second, I'm getting there. The Lord speaks of taking away their sins. But the way he talks about it, it's almost like the way we would talk about removing cancer. Yes, the cancer will be removed, but the process is going to be absolutely dreadful. The only way this dross can be removed, apparently, is if the burning heat of the wrath of God is poured out. Our God is honest with us that very often the removal of sin from our lives hurts. It burns. And I don't doubt that some of you this morning are covering up a sin pattern because to remove it would hurt. In fact, I think for, for some even this takes shape as a kind, of, um, a kind of objection to the Christian faith, right? So like, if, if God is God, why can't He just make us all better overnight? Why does the removal of sin have to hurt? I mean, He's God, isn't He? Why can't he just wave his hand and fix me? Certainly he could do that, right? Yes. I do think there's a little bit of dishonesty going on there about the ways of God and the ways of sin. When we speak of God's sovereignty, for instance, the objection that comes up the most is, well, if God is sovereign, what's the point of anything then? If God is sovereign, if he knows the end from the beginning, what is the point of doing anything? But then, when we take a text like this and we say, okay, Here's the anything that you do. Repent. Identify your sin and flee. Then the objection is, well, wait, I thought God was sovereign. Why can't He just wave His hand and fix it? 
what's going on there is that our flesh always wants to keep the God of the universe at a comfortable distance. Where we can talk about Him, maybe even sing about Him, and think about Him, so long as He stays over there. And we don't actually have to bend our knees in worship. Israel refused to know the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Israel refused to know the Lord because they only wanted part of Him. They only wanted the treasured possession part, right? not the call to obedience. To put it in our language and in a way that we often practice the same kind of sin today, they wanted God to function a bit like a, like a DoorDash driver. Right? If you need something, you call God up, you get your fix of encouragement or hope or happiness or energy or patience or wisdom or courage or love or whatever it is you need. But leave it at the door. And don't you dare come in the house. You see why Jesus in Revelation 3 tells the church that He stands outside the door and He knocks. We like to use that as an evangelistic passage sometimes. Unfortunately, it's given rise to the image of a rather weak God. It's like, you know, please won't you let poor little Jesus in? <laughs> like it's really cold outside and, and poor Jesus is out there knocking on the door all alone. Won't you open up the door of your heart and let him in? It's no wonder people mock that version of Christianity. It's impossible to worship a lonely God. It's impossible to worship an emotionally needy God or an insecure God. It's impossible to worship a God you feel sorry for. Frederick Nietzsche figured that out in the 1800s. As soon as God becomes someone we pity, we cease to be religious in any meaningful sense. That's what Nietzsche said. You cannot worship a God that you pity. But you see, the image there is... Think of it this way, the Lord Jesus standing at the door of a church. People have already confessed Him and saying, I'm, I'm on the wrong side of this door. What this text tells us about God is that, the text in Ezekiel, is that we will face the refining fire of judgment. All of us will. We are sinners who often seek to trade on the experiences of our past or on the good works of our present as an exchange where we say the right things and maybe God kindly leaves us alone. What we learn when we study the Scriptures, though, what we learn about our God is that you will either face the unmediated wrath of God poured out. That's how Ezekiel, that's how our passage ends, speaking of His wrath poured out. Or you will flee to the Son, Jesus, who endured the burning hot, poured out wrath of God against sin in your place. What Christians have after the cross, is a God who will still refine us, make no mistake, but His fire will not consume us. C.S. Lewis put it best when he said, imagine yourself, I know that's kind of small print, I'll read it to you. Imagine yourself living, excuse me, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He's doing. But then, presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? What on earth is he up to? Saying when God comes in to do renovation of the heart and it hurts, and you're wondering, what is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a different kind of house than the one you thought of. You thought you were being made into a decent little house cottage. He is building 
a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So dear saints, I ask you, will you be remade? Or will you cling to the dross until it ruins you? What if God actually means to remake your marriage? Will you let him? Or are you too busy clinging to the ways that your suffering has made you feel validated? What if God means to remake your attitude toward your suffering? Will you let him? Or do you love the attention that your suffering gets you? What if God means to change you? What if he means to change all the things you think you know about your, what, your desires, your self-understanding, even your personality, so that you've decided some of those changes are impossible? What if they're not? What if you're dealing with a refiner who means to refine you over the course of your whole life? Nothing is too great for him. Not even remaking you in the perfect image of His own dear Son. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So our Father, now as we go to the table, I pray that You would ready our hearts for it. I pray that here we would feast together in joy and in knowing the good news of our Redeemer and our Refiner who means to make us more and more into his own image. This is really good news. This means that we serve a God that doesn't give up on us. And so grant us the faith to believe in such a glorious gift. In Jesus' name, amen.